Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Thomas, good morning or good afternoon. As the yeah, good evening, yeah. <laughs> yeah or good evening. Uh, so this is the Applied Ethics Center uh, podcast. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Thomas Brudholm. Thomas is a associate professor at the University of Copenhagen in the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies. And uh, Thomas has written some very important works on resentment, has a big book on hatred coming out uh, this spring with Oxford, has an important collection on the emotions and mass atrocity coming out soon. Um, so Thomas, welcome, it's great to see you. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you. And um, so Thomas, uh, since you've done this uh, incredible work uh, through the years on uh, resentment and uh, hatred, uh, I thought, uh, you know, what an interesting and uplifting topic for uh, our uh, um, our listeners to uh, get some more insight into. Um, so I wanted to uh, maybe start with asking, uh, you're coming out with this new book about um, hate and giving a philosophical account of hate. Uh, how How did you become interested in that? Well... There's a short story and a little longer story. Okay. <laughs> and, and the short story is that around seven years ago, the whole uh, discourse or concept of hate crime came to Denmark and came to Europe more widely. So we suddenly got this word, Helferbundelser, hate <laughs> crime in Danish. And I wondered, what's that? We have never heard about that before. Maybe someone could remember reading something about something happening in the US and then you would see the word in English, hate crime. Hmm. But suddenly people, human rights advocates and others started talking about hate crime. Hmm. And at the same time, I had kind of maybe floating in the back of my mind uh, and uh, you know, uh, something to do with hatred because I had as you also mentioned, worked on anger and resentment previously. Uh-huh. In my work on resentment or anger, hatred figured kind of always in the background as the, as the evil order, <laughs> as what <laughs> anger and resentment was definitely not and what it should not be conflated with. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of mistreated hatred <laughs> the way that I liked resentment not to be treated. So mm-hmm. I owe hatred and, <laughs> and finally, at the same time, I, I, before I came to the University of Copenhagen, I worked at a department for genocide and Holocaust studies. Mm-hmm. And in the field of, uh, of genocide studies, hatred has been discussed for long and there are heated debates for long about the causal role of hate in genocide. Hmm. But often with little or no reflection on what what do we mean when we talk about hate. Hmm. There was a kind of confluence of different reasons hmm. uh, for, for, for settling on this uh, happy topic of, oh. of hatred. Yeah. Oh. So to, to pick up a couple of the threads there, um, when you say that you uh, mistreated the idea of hatred or that this idea of hatred deserves an apology, um, why is it? that it deserves being treated more seriously? Why is it that it deserves this more nuanced uh, examination? Are there some versions of hatred that we should think about as more legitimate than others? So why why was, I guess my question is, why wasn't your initial response uh, to say, you know, resentment and anger, maybe there's something to save from them and they're important politically, but hate is just destructive, which kind of would be the, I assume, the layperson's response. Why not just go with that? Yeah, that, that, that was my response. Yeah, <laughs> right. 
April. And when I when I started working on on hate too, it was mainly for kind of analytical reasons, simply to become more clear mm. about what what do we mean, not as in the case of anger and resentment to kind of defend anger. In, in the case of resentment and anger, I myself was a bit angry <laughs> on behalf of uh, genocide survivors and mm -hmm. apartheid and torture victims who, as I saw, it was sometimes kind of pushed to try forgive when they perhaps shouldn't. And in that, in that context, I kind of, I, I, as many others, I not just explained, but also defended anger. Okay. And when I, so yeah, so when I began working on hate, to begin with, it was not to try defend it, and it's probably not even that now. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but I do think that we need to, to stop and think about the possibility that hatred is not always and necessarily the kind of pathological, bad and vicious emotion that we often take it to be. Mm -hmm. And I think we often, or not often, but we sometimes even they use it in a, in a very different sense. Mm -hmm. So okay. it is something positive. Mm -hmm. Can you um, can you give me uh, some examples where hate would be? Yeah, for example, yeah. for example, in Karl Popper, <laughs> the, the theorist of science, uh -huh. he has an essay. It's hidden at the end of a very thick book, <laughs> but he explains that something very important to him and to his work is that he hates, he hates violence. Hmm. And he says himself, it's irrational, I cannot explain it, but it's very important. So there, often hate is used in a positive sense when directed against, against of course, vices and evils as violence itself. But perhaps more interestingly, today, especially in, in the UK, in campaigns against hate crime and hate speech, you find again and again the use of hate as something unequivocally evil and bad. Mm -hmm. So we hate disabledism, we hate anti-Semitism, we hate this and that, but, but then sometimes there is this appeal to, to, to hatred as something we should feel and direct toward these evils. And there's a, there are several campaigns also by police stations where there's an appeal to hate, hate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting from a philosophical point mm -hmm. of view, what's the difference between the hate threats that we hate and the hate with which we are supposed to hate them? <laughs> That's really good. So there's, there's this double <laughs> negative kind of version of hatred uh, that I mean, tell me if this is fair, that there are phenomena that are so hateful that the only appropriate approach to them is hating them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, are, there other, are there other cases? Um, I mean, I, I, I know that both in your work and uh, in some other work about resentment and anger, sometimes resentment and anger are taken to be rather than something that traps us in the past an indication of appropriate self-respect or that the inability to be angry and resentful somehow worries us because it means you don't take the harms done to you seriously enough is there a context in which hate is like that too for example i'm trying to think if somebody commits a terrible personal crime against you, something like hurting your child or rape or so on and so forth. Uh, is there a problem with not hating them under those circumstances for a similar argument? Hmm, that could be, but it, it's definitely much more controversial hmm. because typically we tend to construe anger and resentment as an emotion or attitude that is compatible with still seeing the other and treating the other as a fellow human being, mm -hmm. <laughs> and someone that surely be, should be held to account. But yeah. that, whereas in hatred, there's often the perception or the idea that it comes together with a, a dehumanizing attitude mm -hmm. and, and, and with an attitude to the, to the other as someone who is rotten to the bone <laughs> and the object of uh, appropriate desires for elimination. I got it. 
And that is, of course, <laughs> if you even try go into a direction where you defend that when directed toward other persons, it's quite controversial. Mm. And there's a need for other philosophical distinctions, right. for example, between the very feeling of the desire to destroy or eliminate or expulse someone mm. or some on the one hand and then acting on it. It might in some cases be not, not uh, impermissible or it might sometimes be permissible to feel the emotion, but not to act on it. For example, Primo Levi, the mm. survivor of the Holocaust, famous for his very reasonable and humanistic reflections on being in Auschwitz, mm -hmm. He also wrote a poem for Adolf Eichmann. Hmm. And in that poem, he wishes Adolf Eichmann millions of sleepless nights. Hmm. He kind of wishes endless suffering upon this man. Mm -hmm. and, as, uh, and that wish in itself, given the circumstances of the crime and the responsibility of the person, might be not just psychologically understandable, but but not not wrong, at least to feel, yeah. even if it would be wrong to try, even to try act on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that kind of uh, that's really interesting. That kind of brings me and connects me to something else you said uh, when you described how you got interested in this, and has to do with the role of um, hate and mass atrocity or in uh, genocide and the causal role. Um, so what are you, what are you finding? Um, I know that initially in your career, you were influenced by um, some work that argued that it always has a causal role or doesn't have a causal role. Actually, I'm, now I'm a little confused, uh, but uh, it doesn't have a causal role, right? There are most, most scholars who like to be respected as such mm -hmm. in the field of Holocaust and genocide studies tend to argue that hatred plays little or no role even. I mean, there are books with the title Murder Without Hatred about mm -hmm. the Holocaust in the Baltic countries. And there's a long tradition from the Polish sociologist Sigmund Bauman that stresses the insignificance of, of hatred mm -hmm. as a really interesting variable. Um, on the other hand, there are other scholars who kind of argue that hatred is the prime causal uh, factor behind, for example, the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And eliminationism, in the word of uh, Goldhagen, an American historian, yep. is key to understand genocides. I, I think I go with, I, I'm, I'm not a historian, and I'm not a political theorist, so I'm not really myself into research as to the causal roles of genocide. But, but I, I definitely go with a, a multi-factor analysis where hate plays some role. Mm -hmm. But, but my, my ambition has not been to come up with a theory of the causes of genocide, but rather to prompt scholars who do that <laughs> to think more broadly about, about hatred. Mm -hmm. And for example, the relationship between uh, hatred and, and dehumanization mm -hmm. and genocide. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about a lot of 20th century genocides has been that actually those have happened between groups that have had great empathy for each other in the sense of living together, intertwined, intermingled. One thinks about Rwanda, one thinks about the Balkans. These are people, and you know, to some extent, even uh, in parts of uh, uh, pre-World War II uh, Europe, these are people who are deeply intermingled, uh, do business with each other, intermarry, play together, go out together. Uh, and then almost always there's a relatively short campaign uh, of dehumanization um, because you do sort of traditionally ask yourself how these neighbors are able to kill each other uh, and make this kind of turn and it's taken easily that the missing link is some campaign, some pretty effective campaign of dehumanization. So in your view, the hate is the result of the campaign of dehumanization, something else, like how, how are those two related? 
I think that's a, a, an enormously complex uh, and, and really it's a very good question and it's a very complex question and, and part of the complexity also has to do with the ambiguity uh, surrounding the concept of dehumanization and, and, and sometimes dehumanize, if, if dehumanization means that you see the other as completely non-human Mm-hmm. And, and this is a tempting view of dehumanization because we are all familiar with the animalistic metaphors or with the pathological metaphors. So the other is, or the victim group is depicted as, as, an, as, a, a ra- as rats mm-hmm. or as a plague or as cockroaches and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you take that... On, on its uh, as a, um, take that for granted if you think that dehumanization means the complete and utter rejection of the victim group from the category of human beings, then hatred might be an inappropriate emotion to think yeah. with because I, I, and then we might rather speak about disgust or maybe contempt, but at least disgust right. or an objective attitude. you simply have to deal with these animals or this plague, that evil. But, but then I think that is an insufficient concept of dehumanization. And, and I actually prefer the, a bit, maybe a bit a strange concept of monstrification. Mm. Because I, I think the, the good thing about thinking about dehumanization in terms of monstrification is that if you look more closely into the campaigns and the rhetoric of genocide, then you often see that the victim group is seen, depicted as something that is both human and non-human, inhuman. Uh, You need, on the one hand, the victim group to be able to be malevolent, to be able to wish for destruction. So you need something as a genocidaire, that has the capabilities of human beings. On the other hand, you reduce the victim group to something pure evil. Uh, so so what, what is uh, interesting, I think, about dehumanization is exactly this kind of, you, you presuppose what you deny. The mm-hmm. other is and is not a human being. Mm-hmm. That in Hitler's Mein Kampf, for example, the Jew, is both like a vampire, like disease, and evil. Right. That only a human being can be. And this is where hatred (laughs) becomes relevant. Because in kind of, in in hatred, there can be this uh, transfer of the other to the limit of what we can deal with as as, uh, fellow human beings. That's interesting. I wonder if, because um, that makes that makes sense that if all dehumanization means is making the victim group completely less than human, if that's successful, there's not much room in hating them. There's not much room left for hating them. They're, so, they're sort of no longer even worthy of hate. Uh, and then, as you say, you either feel contempt or disgust or just a practical attitude of, you know, you need to clean them up and so on and so forth. Um, and the, the monstrous other is a horrible other, yeah, capable of, of great evil. That's in, in, in a way that's even right. In a way that's even a version of superhumanizing rather than dehumanizing. You could say that. <laughs> right? They they become some sort of super like 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 some kind of superhero or super villain. It's interesting because one of the first uh, like an early uh, analysis of uh, anti-Semitism claimed that some of the Europeans see the Jews as a ghost among the people and kind of added a supernatural, superhuman type of approach that made them not only despicable, but also uh, an object of fear. Hmm. Um, and I think that goes, that goes nicely uh, with the analysis that you're, that you're offering. I wonder empirically, if there are some cases of genocide where one happens and one, some cases of genocide where the other happens. If I remember correctly, for example, it seems to me like the Rwandan genocide was largely about dehumanization in the more primitive cockroaches sense. 
And, but I'm not sure if I'm completely right about that. So in other words, whether, whether all of these cases involve monstrification or some involve more monstrification than others, and if the ones that involve more monstrification than others, somehow you could illustrate that more hate was involved. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> now comes up your empirical political theorist. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I think that, of course, um, the, the, the Holocaust and the Nazi depiction of, of the Jew is often taken as the kind of the paradigm example of the most monstrous kind right. of dehumanization. Right. And there's a long tradition of thinking about Nazi dehumanization in terms of something that is pure fantasy. Yeah. There's no kind of uh, smoke where there's fire. It's it's uh, it's also called uh, what is it? Langmuir talks about uh, chimeric yeah. uh, uh, fantasies, purely monstrous. But I I think that if you go, maybe we have to distinguish between the level of rhetorical campaigning, mm -hmm. the pamphlets, the radio programs where you might be able to find kind of pure, simple, complete, utter uh, categorization of the victim group as purely not human. But I think as we move from, from rhetoric and propaganda to the killing fields, uh, it's impossible. <laughs> I think if, if you move to the micro descriptions of genocidal perpetration, whether you talk about neighbors or strangers, uh, it's clear that you deal with another human being. Yeah. So there will be this maybe between the ideology of the other as a, as, a, as, a, as a disease, as something that has to be destroyed, and the reality of the other as you see him right there, standing there as a woman or a child mm. or a man. Mm. So is your sense that, like, theoretically, that people like Hannah Arendt and Eichmann in Jerusalem or uh, Carl Schmitt and the concept of the political, they just uh, don't take hatred seriously enough? Uh, this whole discussion of the enemy is not somebody you need to hate in Schmitt, it's just almost required for the definition of the in-group. And the more bureaucratic account, the famous bureaucratic account uh, in Arendt, and that gives this rather than monstrous picture that came up from the Primo Levi poem of Eichmann, yes. sort of dumb, unimpressive, boring, ambitious, and so on and so forth. Yes, I, I think if I just stick to Hannah Arendt, uh, I, I certainly think that there's a danger in just taking at face value what she writes and observes about Eichmann from her witness <laughs> position in, yeah. in Jerusalem. And I think that it has to be supplemented, for example, with these poems and descriptions and reflections yeah. uh, on behalf of the survivors and the victims. Yeah. But also the, the, the letters and, and the memories written by perpetrators themselves. And there you get, a, of course, much more massively complex picture. Well, you know, it, it's funny because, or not funny, but I always, reading the end of Eichmann in Jerusalem, it always seemed like, given the way that she describes hate or kind of the weight that she takes off of hate, the ending is a sort of deus ex machina a little bit. She said, well, here's this bureaucratic account, this, you know, really fascinating but somewhat emotionally vacant account that explains Eichmann. And in the end, we still have to kill you because you excluded yourself out of uh, human company or you've taken yourself out of human society or some such. I don't remember the exact quote. Um, and so that's a sort of un unvengeful killing, if you want, uh, that comes there. And at the very least, an account that gives more more play to uh, hate makes more sense of revenge also. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a cold. I, Eichmann's hatred is described by the judges in Jerusalem as cold. Mm -hmm. Thus, much more vicious mm -hmm. than the hatred we might know from literature. Mm -hmm. but, and, and what she says to Adolf Eichmann at the end, that he and his fellow 
perpetrators of the Nazi genocide acted as if they were the masters of who were to live and not to live on the surface of the earth. Yeah. And thus deserved to himself to be killed. That is, uh, I mean, this uh, justification of the elimination of Eichmann from the face of the earth might well be argued to be an instance of uh, righteous hatred. So yeah. hatred always feels righteous for those who have it. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> Thomas, reading, reading through some of the materials you wrote on this, uh, can you... Can you give me some uh, highlights about where you see the most interesting moments about hatred from the history of philosophy? I mean, there would tend to be this first cut on this, which at least I ask, um, since hatred seems to be an irrational, in some ways, emotion or an emotion that challenges rationality or an emotion that overwhelms rationality, one would expect, at least in the kind of traditional Plato, Aristotle, Enlightenment, later on Enlightenment tradition, a suspiciousness of hate. Is that, is that what you found? I, I think, if speaking very roughly, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we might say that uh, Plato and Aristotle can be seen as the the fathers of two rather different traditions of how to think about hatred in, in the West. Mm -hmm. And most of the philosophy of hatred and also in the Enlightenment uh, are footnotes to Plato, so to say. Mm -hmm. uh, and Plato, because Plato as in another and and Plato in a in a very brief and often unnoticed passage in the Phaedo uh, introduces a, a concept of hatred of argumentation uh, that he calls mythology thus hmm. meaning hatred and and logos of course reasoning argumentation uh -huh. and and I think this is a, a, a really interesting concept and and in that dialogue I think Plato, as the first philosopher in the West, allows Socrates to explain kind of the anatomy of hatred when hatred is, takes the form of, of a vice and a disease uh, that, according to Socrates, is the worst evil that can befall a man. Mythology, hmm. the hatred of argumentation, hmm. turns us away from, yeah, it not, it, not just does it turn us away, it, it uh, encourages us to, to, to vilify and destroy reasoning and argumentation. Yeah. And reasoning and argumentation and examining life is, of course, what makes life worth, worth living. Yeah. So hatred in itself, at least in the form of mythology, yeah. is, is the worst evil. Huh. So that's Plato. <laughs> and, and then you can see from Plato and all the way up through philosophy. It's a very specific form of hatred, right, though? It's a specific form of hatred. And, uh, <coughs> but, but you find again and again that philosophers are interested in the form of hate in different periods that, can, that is seen as a threat to what should matter the most to us. Mm -hmm. So in Kant, in Immanuel Kant, much later, uh, hatred is seen as a passion or Leidenschaft mm -hmm. that destroys the autonomous exercise of reason. But this is then the one tradition. The other tradition, uh, which is at least as interesting, is in Aristotle. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in Aristotle, misas, or hatred, is a normal and, uh, and, and customary or of um, acknowledged emotion, a response to perceived evil. Mm -hmm. so, so I think you can, in a way, you can see these two uh, grand old philosophers as the fathers of, of two traditions. Huh. One that is absolutely against hatred, at least in the form that is, that with which Plato is concerned, and another that allows for hatred in being exercised in in vicious as well as virtuous versions. So, so on an Aristotelian picture, 
the ability to feel hate that what's appropriately hateful can be a indication of virtue actually yeah kind of like and and, and the absence of the ability to to hate hmm. uh, things that are truly hateable or odious hmm. is a lack of virtue hmm. i mean if you are indifferent or if you even appreciate hmm. things that are odious hmm. It's a, it's a lack of virtue. But then hatred is, of course, something very different in, or partly different in Aristotle. Because there are also similarities when, when, you, when you hate, uh, you, you have this desire or motivation to expulse or eliminate the object of hate. Aristotle writes that the man who hates, or the person who hates, we might say, uh, wishes that the who or what he hates should cease to exist. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the classic idea of hate as this the, the prototypically hatred moves towards or motivates elimination, annihilation. Mm. This is what one of one of the most peculiar characteristics I think of hate if you mm. compare it to other emotions. Mm. It's interesting. So there, there, there can be a, so there can definitely for Aristotle be a mean about hating. Even. Yeah, and you can even say that in his rhetoric, he provides the very first instruction in how to incite hatred. Huh. He treats, and that's so fascinating from our perspective today, that he treats hatred on a par with shame and anger and, and the other emotions. It's not taken out. I think today it appears sometimes like hatred is perhaps the last taboo emotion. I mean, you can be jealous, je- jealous. you can even have envy, you can be angry, but hate is kind of off limit, mm-hmm. but not an Aristotle. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and then again, not in, in some of the campaigns today, this is what I found interesting, that going through hundreds and hundreds of campaigns against hate crime and seeing again and again the depiction of hate as an evil, as something that is incompatible with an enlightened mind, indeed as a form of prejudice or bigotry, then sometimes you have these campaigns where you have righteous citizens depicted in nice photographs looking you straight in the eye holding you to account, and then with the written message that I hate that I was indifferent, or mm. I hate that I didn't uh, call the police. So these, these people in this campaign from Thames Valley Police, they hate various kinds of moral failures as they remember how they confronted hate crime. Yeah. And, and, and in their remembrance, in their hateful remembrance of their passivity in the face of evil, they are committed to, you know, another degree of citizen virtue. So in a very careful and delimited sense, you could say that this is a picture of, of hate as a, as a citizen virtue. I guess I'm curious if you open that, that that's fascinating. Um, it's a dangerous thing to open. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there, if you open that door, I mean, these are not only emotions that we're dealing with, but in some way our most powerful emotions. Mm. Uh, if you open that door to citizen virtue versions of hate, are you, are you taking any risks? So in other words, if we... I, 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 much, I would much rather go with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in his <laughs> comment to, to what happened in, 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 what was it, Charlottesville? Uh-huh. Uh, the, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in his fictive speech to President Trump says confidently that there are, no, there are not two sides to bigotry. There are mm-hmm. not two sides to hatred. Hatred mm-hmm. is just to be condemned. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is perhaps the message that sometimes needs to be what is the message in the public realm. But at the same time, as a philosopher, you cannot rest with that. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a reduction of the phenomenon of hatred. Right. I mean, it seems like in some ways there are two sides to hatred, that hating so. what is appropriate to hate is legitimate and important, and maybe not being able to do that is a sign of some sort of limitation. But there are, of course, not, there are not two sides to prejudice. Right. 
something. There are not two sides to bigotry. Right. The, the, the point is that hatred is more than bigotry. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because in that context, for example, uh, the uh, so-called Antifa or anti-fascist movement here uh, in the States rose to prominence. And that's been a violent movement, so a uh, movement that essentially violently attacks fascism uh, and shows up in some of these neo-Nazi demonstrations and practices violence against them. There's been a lot of discussion here, including in my university, about whether that kind of violence by the left, from the left, anti-fascist violence is more legitimate than fascist violence. Um, I don't think that they could be doing what they're doing without hating in some way. Uh, so it seems like hating is some kind of motivational condition. Um, and it raises interesting question of, I mean, it kind of raises the question that you describe as citizen virtue slash the question from Popper. So that neighborhood of uh, hatred whether hatred that makes possible violence against the most hateful causes is is somehow to be excused, to be celebrated, to be legitimized in some way. Yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I mean, I, I guess the question that I have is with hate, given how powerful it is, it's the one emotion that seems very close to action. Mm -hmm like that, that in some sense it has a, a greater proximity to action than anger than resentment does that make sense yeah yeah but i'm not sure <laughs> whether it's correct in, in a in a way it, it's of course there's a reason why hate crime is called hate crime there's a sense that the the hate drives the crime and right. it's this but at the same time um i wonder if you try compare anger and and hate, whether you can even say that one or the other has a more kind of uh, action, with more action motivating than the other. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, with, with regard to, to hate, um, one of the reasons why it's so complex to discuss is that we probably have to distinguish also uh, between talking about hate as, um, as an occurrent emotion Mm -hmm. and as an attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, when, ja when Iago in Shakespeare's Othello, he writes, says, I hate the Moor or the Moor. <laughs> mm -hmm. I hate someone. It may mean that you, uh, for decades, have hated someone mm -hmm. and you might continue hating this person for a lifetime. But that does not mean that you all the time walk around consciously feeling whatever it is to feel hate right and on the other hand you can also say i hate the moor and in this very moment of uttering the words you are possessed you are filled with rage mm -hmm. and destructive urge and mm -hmm. so so and if so if you if you have hate or if you feel hate as an occurrent emotion mm -hmm then there might be a short step to anger. But hatred can then also be an attitude and it can be cold and it can be a, a passion mm -hmm. that is compatible with calculation and reasoning, mm -hmm. made to a much higher degree than anger and disgust, contempt. Mm -hmm. So you, you, can, mm -hmm. you can have, you know, I, I, I really hate this or that or those people, mm -hmm. but I will not do anything for the moment. Oh, all, you, all, you find that also in uh, Charles Darwin huh. in his uh, classic on, on the emo expression of the emotions in, in human beings and animals. Huh. And he writes about hate, that it, it can be impossible to look at a person and see whether he hates or not. Huh. That's really interesting. Makes, yeah. me, makes, makes me think about the new incarnations of white supremacists in this country uh, and that their hate has kind of driven them to repackage their message uh, as an alternative right, try to make it in some neighborhoods more uh, respectful, try to give it more of intellectual patina so that they can realize, uh, realize the agenda more. Um, so that's, that, that's actually really interesting that the, the ability to view hate as an attitude 
actually allows for a greater degree of um, strategic planning. Um, it's, it's, it's dangerous to reduce hate to affect. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think also in it's interesting because it runs through the entire tradition, this distinction or, or the eye to the possibility of hatred to, to, to take both forms. It's mm -hmm. like, love, you know, being in love, being, you know, mm -hmm. all yeah. upside and loving someone right. for life. And, and, and Kant, Emmanuel Kant, he expressed it wonderfully poetically, I think, when he compared anger as an affect and hatred as a passion. And he writes that something like if, if affect, if the affect of anger is like water in the river that break, that breaks through a dam, bang. Mm. <laughs> and then the passion of hatred is like a river that digs itself deeper and deeper into its bed. Huh. You don't notice. Yeah. There's no moment when you will notice, but as time goes by, suddenly, it's really solidly there. <laughs> yeah, that is a beautiful picture, especially because it also captures this kind of undermine, long-term undermining that hate has, and because it captures the kind of almost rot from the word rotting that it, you know, uh, uh, creates. Although, in a way, if we look at it as an attitude or as a disposition rather than an immediate affect, there's still a way in which you can say, um, or I guess I'm curious about this. So if somebody is capable of hating the Moor or hating the Jews or what have you as an attitude, and then they strategically calculate how to some point in their life realize or turn that hatred into policy or what have you, is it enough that they have that capability to say, that this is a hateful person. So in other words, for a person who's a loving person, a person who's in a, some sort of gratifying long-term relationship, you say they are a person capable of love. They are a loving father. They are a loving husband, regardless of what they feel in moment one or in moment two. It seemed to me that you'd be right to say the same about a person capable of hate, that they're a hateful person. Yes, if 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 they are disposed to act hatefully. <laughs> well, what if they're not though? Because they can't. So somebody might hate the Moor, but live in Cambridge, you know, where the atmosphere is cosmopolitan or liberal, or hate the Jew and live in Copenhagen and so on and so forth. So, you know, I've I, I've had neighbors like that, neighbors that are disposed to it but can't act on it, and I wouldn't want to spare them moral judgment. No, no. I don't know. In that situation, maybe hatred spills over into ressentiment. Yeah. Uh, defined yeah. as this, you know, centrifugal reliving of certain emotions endlessly because you you have the inclination, but you don't have the power right. to on them. So you cannot let go of the feeling that you are justified feeling this or that, but you are also cannot act out. Yeah the feeling and then it simmers and keeps yeah huh thomas can you, can you can you be wrong about hating can you be can you think that you hate acts and be wrong about it mm, a problem i'm not sure <laughs> i don't know i think as you can be wrong about i think sometimes it's uh it's illuminating to try think through also through love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so many similarities, uh, also differences, but certainly also similarities. And mm -hmm. I, I guess you can realize that you thought you were in love, but actually you were not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 mm -hmm. I, I think that one of the ways we know whether we hate something or someone is exactly by observing noticing reflecting on what we are otherwise feeling yeah. what we are ready to do so you you love some you realize maybe that you love someone you maybe you were not aware that you did yeah. but you realize it by by the happiness you feel in her yeah. or his presence 
the sadness, the sorrow you feel as they are away and so forth. Hmm. And in the same way, maybe, with hatred, huh. you say that you... It's so unclear what this means to hate. So you, you could say that, well, I realize slowly that I hate you. <laughs> and uh, I realize that by the tons of bad feelings that I'm right now sitting, talking here with you. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by. <laughs> Gradually. <laughs> I'm sorry I made you feel that way. <laughs> yeah, but in, in that sense, you could say that you, there's some kind of a dialectic, so there's a, a relationality between this kind of arch attitude and many different emotions that we will be disposed to feel or not feel and we detect whether we harbor the deeper long-term attitude as we are put in different situations where different emotions appear or do not appear. Oh, that's, that's really good. That's in really that good. sense, you could say that you are not really aware, I mean, that you can be wrong about hating and it's also, and now we are talking about hatred as an attitude felt by reasonable persons. <laughs> right. Right. Reflect. But, but if we move to the discussion, for example, in Jean Paul Sartre of the hatred of the anti Semite, right. it's almost defined by Sartre as an, as an instance of bad faith about lying to yourself. Right. Uh, and in that sense, I'm not sure whether the anti semite as depicted by Sartre, would hmm. even know that he, he hates. Hmm. Yeah, in a way, there's an interesting context in which that question comes up in this country where there's a real inflation of using emotional language. Hmm. So you hear it from children, you hear it from adults, but they hate and they love things very, very easily. Yeah. Um, that would be a kind of if you want a silly example of being wrong about hating something, you know, my, my daughter hating her cereal or people loving, absolutely loving a, a, a TV show. Um, but I guess you can use it about pretty much anything. From cucumber, philosopher seems to like cucumbers, so or what is a, a cauliflower, or what is a <laughs> Broccoli. I think it's broccoli that always appears <laughs> as the example of a trivial, simple yeah. hate. And, uh, but I guess that the criterion for hating in a vernacular, common, everyday sense could be that you hate something if you, A, you, you wish for uh, living in a world without that something. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you necessarily want to, to rid the world of this something, but you want to live in a world where you don't have to bother with that. And, and, and the second thing would be that uh, it's, it's something essential or something that is not accidental about this something that you want to eliminate. Uh, if you hate uh, uh, broccoli, you will not be able to eat it if you see uh, if you are served a yellow broccoli or another <laughs> kind of broccoli or, yeah. you, or any broccoli is bad. If you yeah. hate something, if you hate to the Tutsi moving now to the much to the dark, if you hate the Jew or the Tutsis or whatever, uh, you hate them all. I mean, yeah. uh, soldiers, civilians, hmm. I hate or someone hates these kind of people. And this, is, this goes all the way back to, to Plato's very first analysis of hate. The mysologist or mysologue hates all kinds of argumentation, not just bad argumentation, not just bullshit. He hates argumentation per se. And at the same, the, mis the mis misanthrope hates human beings. Yeah, per se, yeah. But that's my, that might be, I think, what we could call prototypical hatred, paradigmatic hatred, hmm. this kind of universalistic hmm. attitude. And then, then come some of the problems, for example, in the field of hate crime, where you find discussions whether, whether misogyny or whether rape and can be a hate crime. Hmm. And there, without people, because people have seldom reflected on the meaning of hate, so they use without really reflecting on it the criterion that if it's hate, it must be all women hmm. that 
possibly hated it. But but I but I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm not sure. I, I think it's better to think about these features of hatred huh. as, uh, as a prototypical categories huh. that, that is, allow for for less clear instances. That makes that makes a ton of sense. You know, as I was uh, as I was thinking about our conversation this morning. Uh, when I was driving back home, I, w I, I listened to the radio, and there's a new uh, there's a new scandal here uh, with uh, one of the persons in the south. Uh, uh, his last name is Moore. I'm blanking for the moment on uh, which state he's from. He's running for a senate seat. He just won the Republican uh, primary in one of the southern states, um, and he seemed like a complete. It's a very conservative state. He seemed like a complete shoo-in to uh, become the senator uh, from that state. And uh, then over the weekend or a few days ago, um, reports started coming out that years ago he had uh, behaved inappropriately sexually to underage girls, to 14-year-old fourteen-year-old girl, uh, maybe more than one. Again, I'm not 100% uh, on the details. And uh, the interesting thing was, as they interviewed people, uh, they interviewed his constituents, the, a very powerful sentiment was that uh, even if all of this turned out to be true, um, he's denying it, but even if it all turned out to be true, they would certainly vote for him because it's better than a Democrat. Winning that, uh, winning that seat, and that was that. That was a quote from several people, yeah. and it, and it struck me uh, thinking about the materials that I read from you that, in a way, that would be an indirect way in which you find out how much you hate somebody. If you prefer a pedophile to a Democrat politically, you know, with everything that's absolutely wrong with that, you also find out how much you hate Democrats. If, by doing that, so, it struck me as a case of discovering hatred almost indirectly, or almost this kind of way of deducing hatred. Yeah, yeah, that could be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and Thomas, I'm really, really looking forward to reading this book when it comes out. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the first, the first person to buy it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for talking with me. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and I guess I, I hope to talk to you and to see you again soon. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu/ethics.